So a few weeks ago, Easter Sunday to be exact, we started a new uh, series called Life 2.0. We started with the story of Lazarus, who had fallen ill and passed away and was buried. And Jesus came by a few days later and met with Lazarus's two sisters and others who were mourning his death. And then he went to the site of the grave. And Jesus ordered that that stone be rolled away. And then he spoke Lazarus' name into that tomb. And he said, come forth. And a man who had been dead for a number of days got up by the power of God and walked out of that grave. And what I've been wanting us to do over the, over the subsequent weeks in this series called Life 2.0 is reflect on what would that be like to be given a second life, a second chance, a new beginning. And we've looked at various aspects of this idea in the New Testament as Uh, Various passages have talked about the new life we find in the resurrection we have in Christ and what that looks like and what that means. And this morning I want to uh, look into our new nature as the result of what Christ has done for us on the cross, but more importantly as it ties into this series, through what he has given us in the resurrection in the new life that we find in him uh, as he is risen. And so I'm going to bring us to the third chapter of the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. And I want us to look at these verses 1 through 17 in Colossians chapter 3 as we ask this question, what is our new nature? in Christ. And what does that mean for how we live, for the way we engage God and others? So follow along with me from the third chapter of the book of Colossians, verses 1 through 17. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated At the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, 
which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, And as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Curly, red, magi, and yiddle. Those were the four predominant nicknames in my household growing up. There was my brother Drew, whose hair was straight, but my dad called him Curly. There was my sister, whose hair was red, and her nickname hence was Red. There was my brother, my oldest brother, who is still in theater today, uh, who was quite um, the showman, and he when he turned 16 he bought his very own car with his very own money it was a 1959 Cadillac tail fins and all it was a piece of junk by the way but it looked cool and uh, he paid for it with money that he made doing magic shows for little kids birthday parties so he was Mark the Magi and uh, my dad's name was Tom, and I was the youngest of, of four at that time. We later adopted a brother, and I, I can't tell you his nickname because you can't repeat it in church. But uh, um, anyway, where was I? I digress. My nickname was Yittle. And that, it's kind of a long story, but every, for a long time I was Little Tom, and then my family kind of 
merged with a family in Mexico, and my parents would trade kids with their kids, or their parents, you know what I'm saying. We had our own little ex- international exchange program. It's where I learned Spanish, and um, it, it's, you know, anyway, you get the idea. That, the mother of that family, Mrs. Irma, um, would always call me Yiddle Tom. I don't really know why, because her English was better than ours, but she just that's what she chose to call me, and that name kind of stuck. Um, why in the world am I telling you this, right? That wasn't even the tip of the family iceberg. In, in my family, you never, you never really said anything straight to the other person. Um, it was always coated with what? What warm, fuzzy, loving, wonderful manner of treating other people did we use all the time? Sarcasm, thank you. My kids even gave me a t-shirt that says sarcasm, one of many things I have to offer or something like that, one of many gifts I share. I don't know what it says. Um, This was the... uh, way we communicated. It was normal to us, right? Um, This is not always a helpful default to have as a pastor, right? Okay, you might have a serious situation you want to discuss, and I'll probably be inclined to make some kind of a snide remark. Now, some of you get that. I married into a family that I, I'm pretty sure never used sarcasm, all right? Uh, is that fair? I mean, you, the, I, y'all were not sarcastic in your household that you ran. You, were, you did everything right, right, Dolores? Yes, of course. And so there's, there's like a little bit of a, of a communication gap between my wife's family of origin and my family of origin. Um, And sometimes we offend them. I don't think anyone from Kathy's family of origin has ever offended any of us. I'm pretty sure. But those who grew up in the Casa Masterson can be a little abrasive at times. Right? What? Yeah, I mean, I know it's hard to believe that your, your godly, loving, kind pastor could ever... Yes, don't even go there. Do not even go there. (laughs) So, here's the deal. We all all come into our, our life in Christ with baggage. With ways of conducting ourselves that worked at one point in our lives that are not really what God wants for us or from us now. And, you know, among my many struggles as a Christian, this one ranks actually pretty high. To not be sarcastic, to just shoot straight and show kindness rather than uh, native cruelty to others, right? Because, uh, you know, when you, when you grow up 
in a house where sarcasm is valued, you learn to cut first, right? Even if it's yourself. That's the really twisted thing about like Thanksgiving dinner when everybody gets back together is people begin insulting themselves hoping that if they beat everybody else to the punch, the, sar- the sharks won't smell the blood, right? And, uh, but this tendency is not what God wants to call out of me in terms of the way I treat others and the way I, I live. I suppose he wants to get it out of me in that other way, but this is not what he wants of me. And I would dare say this is true for all of us, that we are being called into a new nature, which comes with a whole new way of living. Of, of responding to others, of looking at ourselves and God and everyone for that matter. And so as we begin this look into our new nature in Christ, we hear Paul calling us to shift our affections, to, to shift really our full affections from where they once were to Christ. Verses 1 through 4 of this passage, Paul reminds us we've been raised. We are Lazarus. We are spiritually Lazarus. We've been called forth from the grave and given new life. And because of that, since then, Paul says, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Look up. The shift in our nature, the shift in our affections begins by looking heavenward. Your heart has a new home. You, uh, if, you're, if you're reading verse 1 the way I am, Here's the short and quick summary for you. You've been caught up with Christ through his resurrection. If you're with him, where is he? Seated at the right hand of God. You have a place in God's presence. And a place that is secure. Your heart has a new home, and your mind has a new focus. Paul tells us in verse 2, set your minds on things above. Think about, ponder the shift that we have gone from despair to hope from death to life, that Christ has brought us back from the dead and given us new life, new hope. Look up. And as we learn to look up, our affections begin to shift. And as we look up, we also are called to look ahead, 
to see where this is all going. Paul reminds us in verse 3, the work of Christ is behind you. Uh, Among his dying words on the cross, do you remember what they were? It is finished. It is finished. His work is finished. That task, if you will, that he applied himself to of atoning for our sin is over. Who won? Christ. Um, What God has done cannot be undone. His work is complete. Sin and death have been defeated and grace and life have been gifted. The work of Christ is behind you and your future in Christ is before you. The new life that God gives us in Christ lasts forever. I know that's a rather obvious point, but I don't think we stop and ponder that quite often enough. There's no end to God's love, to His grace, to the life that He gives us in Christ. We are to shift our affections toward Him because of all that He has done for us and also because of who He is. He is, in fact, our Creator, our Redeemer, the lover of our souls. And so, as we step into this new nature, we begin to shift our full affections toward Christ. Which, of course, means that we are called to shed our old affections. None of us like these next two lists. I'll just say that. All right? None of this is good or fun or pleasant. But I want you to watch what Paul does. And really, if you think about it, so here's, here's a guy, he's the, the Apostle Paul. He's writing a letter to a church. The guy's, for all practical purposes, blind. And so he's writing through a scribe. So he's, he's dictating this letter to a guy that's sitting there trying to keep up with him. All right? And here's what amazes me about this guy is he, he natively, as, as the Holy Spirit is, is flowing through him to author these words, you get these amazing groupings of ideas. And I want you to see this in this passage. Now, when I write something, you know, I put it in Microsoft Word. And if I see ideas that need to be grouped, I just start cutting and pasting and dragging and dropping, and you get it, right? And it might, it might, after much uh, revision, look like something intelligible, okay? What is just amazing, Paul, not appalling, you're with me, about Paul is this ability for the Spirit of God to flow through his mind and these, the way these ideas are grouped. So, as he calls us to shed our old affections, 
he first calls us to lay to rest our old practices. Now, all of this, this first list in verses 5 through 9, I believe, um, these all drill down to the desire in our soul. And Paul, Paul I'll, just, I'll just, you know, okay. Verse 5, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. All of these are things that are driven by something we want. We may not even know what it is that we want, but it's driving our very nature. It is setting the direction of our affection, if you will. All of these parts of, of what we do, our old practices that are driven by what is natively inside of us. It, look at these as expressions of, of appetite, if you will. We're all trying to, to satisfy something in, in these words. Um, so let's, let's start there. We're to lay down in Christ, lay down, lay to, lay to rest our old practices. That is, first and foremost, self-satisfaction. That first list, that first little hit list that Paul puts up there, all drills down to our own attempts to satisfy ourselves. I do not believe this list is exhaustive. Okay, I think there's things he could have added to it. I don't think it's intended to be the full list. I think it's just intended to get our attention and make us go, oh yeah, um, I do that. I'm there. I get it. Um, and this is, this is, okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to digress for just a moment. And When we, when we take a trip down to Cuba and we worship with our sister church there, there is something about that experience that is invigorating. And I do not, by saying this, intend to, to idolize or, or uh, magnify or in any way romanticize poverty or oppression or anything else. I'm really glad I live here, especially after having been there. Um, oppression is a very, very ugly, insidious, nasty thing. But there's something about the faith in that group of people, in that place where it really costs them something in order to participate in the church that it's not absent here. It's just there's more, there's more background noise in our lives. And here's where I'm going with this. It is far easier for us to go down the path of self-satisfaction and 
for that to never come into conflict with our faith. Um, Let's face it. You know, church has become, Sunday morning has become very competitive. We are competing with the lake, St. Mattress, all right? Um, All of these other golf course, you name it. Um, And so churches, in response to that, have tried to make church a little more convenient. I was ran into somebody at the coffee table this morning. They're like, this is nice. We didn't have time to stop for coffee, and y'all have coffee for us. Well, yes. We want it to be easy for you to get here and come here and participate. They're not brewing coffee for you at church in Cuba. I promise you that. In fact, you might lose your job if you start going to church. Your child might not get into the next level of school. They might be sent to work on a farm and raise pigs just because your family goes to church. It still happens. Um, So where in the world am I going? Self-satisfaction is too easy for us. It's too available. There's something to be said Uh, Again, I'm all for freedom, right? But in Cuba, no one has access to the Internet. That's a bad thing. But when you or I step into that world and pass through that time portal, there's there's some noticeable realities that, that there's just too much background noise in our lives for us to see it here. Self-satisfaction is idolatry, Paul says. Um, It's worshiping me instead of me worshiping God. Um, This is why the Bible advocates simple things like fasting, for example. When we can deprive ourselves of something that we otherwise find satisfying for some period of time, we decrease the level of background noise. When we can go on a retreat or just spend 10 minutes in prayer on a Wednesday morning or whatever, the background noise moves away if we remember to turn our cell phones off, right? Um, And we begin to be able to hear But Paul says, lay down, lay to rest your old practices of self-satisfaction. And then now let's look at this other group that just literally rolls off the top of his head as he's dictating this letter. Verses 7 through 9. Again, no one likes this stuff. Starting in verse 8. Rid yourselves of all such things as these anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language. Do not lie to each other. Do you see a difference between these two groupings of ideas? The first one is all driven by self-satisfaction, lust, greed, and desire. The next one just boils down to flat-out meanness, which let's call that self-protection. The reason I snap at my wife or my kid or whoever is really ultimately out of self-protection. 
I don't want to be bothered. I don't want to be wrong. I don't want whatever. And so in order to, I don't want to be hurt is really what is at the end of that mix. And so I think that I can avoid feeling hurt by lashing out, by cutting first sometimes. I know how to survive in a dog-eat-dog emotional world, right? I grew up that way. Um, It is not what God is calling out of us. We're to lay to rest our old practices of self-satisfaction and self-protection. And we are to lay aside our old prejudices. Paul is very clear. You have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge in knowledge, in the image of its creator. Here, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Here's what Paul is saying. There is so much in human society that divides There is only one thing that unites. That is the blood of Christ. Because when that atoning sacrifice is applied to a human soul, we are all equal. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. No one stands higher than anyone else and no one lower. And it is mind-boggling how much of humanity is still ingrained in these divisive ideas from something uh, as severe as racism to something as mundane as uh, loyalty to a sports team. Um, You know, I'm all about team loyalty, uh, but don't ever go to a Red Sox game. Those people are just crazy. And it's, it's, it's like, really? Is that all we have to divide over is, is a baseball team? And I, I sort of, I'm, I'm using that because it's just kind of silly, but we do it in every category of life. Whether someone is uh, from a certain country or a certain race or a certain class of society or a certain part of town or a certain school. And God says, listen carefully. We are to get past that which divides and get to that which unites. Because all of us, at the end of the day, are created in the image of God. This this simple truth separates two 
of the world's religions from all others. You and I and everyone who has human DNA was created in the image of God. We are called to shed our old affections, to lay to rest our old practices and lay aside our old prejudices. And as we learn to live in the unity of Christ, as sharing in bearing his image in this world, we learn to live out of our new nature. We're called to shift our full affections, shed our old affections, and show our new affections. Paul uses some beautiful imagery to talk about this calling to show who we are to others. He, he talks about these things as if they are clothing. The part of us that others see and respond to. We're to show our new affections toward others, first and foremost. Verses 12 and following. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. This is what we are to put on. The way others should see, perceive us. We're to show our new affections toward others by exhibiting grace, extending forgiveness, and expressing love. Um, the word grace in the New Testament is the same word for thankful. Have you ever heard, uh, uh, I think Catholics tend to use this term more than the rest of us, but uh, some Episcopalians may be familiar with it as well. But uh, communion is often called the Eucharist. Have you heard that term? That's just, that's a Greek word. Eucharist is a Greek word for thankfulness. That's what it means. Or grace. It's the same word. The, the Greek word for grace is the same word for thankfulness. And that word is just saturated in this passage. You can't get a, away from it. It's all over these words. Um, we are called, as we turn our affections toward heaven, toward Christ, and get rid of the, of the junk that we uh, learned from someplace other than here, and we begin to express who we are in Christ to one another and to the world, we're called to show our affection not only toward others, but also toward Christ. It all comes full circle. He turned his affection downward toward us in our sin. 
and came here and dealt with what we couldn't deal with. And he brought reconciliation and peace through his sacrifice. And as he gets a hold of who we are and changes us and makes us new, he lifts our heads, he changes our hearts, and he calls us not only to change the way we treat others, but the way we relate to him. He calls us to live in gratitude for his love. Be thankful, be thankful, be thankful. Did you see that? Verses 15, 16, and 17. He just keeps unrolling the word grace. We're to live in gratitude for his love, and we're to live in harmony with his body. You are the body of Christ. You are his physical presence on earth today. And when we honor one another in the way we live, in the way we respond to each other, we honor Christ. We're to live in gratitude, live in harmony, and live for the glory of his name. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. My native affections are all oriented towards me. God says, I love you too much to leave you like that. And so he calls us out of who we are natively and gives us a new nature and a new wardrobe even, that we can be clothed in kindness, compassion, gentleness, and humility. Because what he has done has brought us unending, eternal peace. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we marvel at all that you have done for us in Christ Lord, lead us to live our lives in such a way that we reflect who you are to others. That we learn to live out of our new nature. To shine your grace, your compassion, your gentleness, kindness, and humility onto, the, onto others and to lift our heads toward heaven and find hope in your resurrection and give glory to your holy name. Lord, may our lives reflect what you have done for us in Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen.